Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, I'm Cindy Ann Thomas. I am a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Well, as many of you out there know, there is a well-worn figure that has been floating around for quite some time that a woman earns 80 cents for every dollar earned by her male colleague. This has been the gender wage gap ratio that we had believed was the one to tackle. However, late last month, a startling new reality check was made as a result of a release of the findings of an impressive study undertaken by the Institute for Women's Policy Research, or the IWPR. One of the most significant components of the research concerns the matter of women's actual long-term experience. Specifically, women's ability to be in the workforce full-time and over a period of time wherein they were more likely than their male counterparts to shoulder the demands of childcare and the fact that many of those women were in part-time jobs. In some, the report finds the following. First, women actually earn just 49 cents to the typical man's dollar. Second, the penalties of taking one year off from work are much higher for women today than they were half a century ago and are far much worse for women than for men who take the same amount of time off. Third, more than two-fifths of today's female workers have had at least one year with no earnings, nearly twice the rate of men. And lastly, strengthening enforcement of EEO policies and Title IX in education is critical to narrowing the wage gap even further so that women can enter into higher paying fields. In other words, The implications are that the 80-20 ratio that has been formulated from Census Bureau data, and which is based on men's and women's median earnings for full-time year-round work, has not been an apples-to-apples comparison. I have invited my colleague, Littler shareholder Yvette Gatling, to join me for this conversation. She is based in our Tyson's Corner, Virginia office, where she enjoys a robust labor and employment, counseling and litigation practice. Yvette, who is the co-chair of our healthcare industry group, has also cultivated extensive experience in developing and conducting wage and hour audits and employment practices audits for companies in a broad range of sectors. Yvette, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, Cindy Ann, thanks for having me today. I think this is a very timely topic, so I'm glad that we have a chance to talk about this study. Absolutely. Now, you've been in this space for a long time, Yvette. What is your reaction to this new study? You know, it's very surprising, you know, because based on the data that we had previously seen, we had always accepted 
that it was, you know, this 80 to 20 ratio. Um, and it still shows that there's a lot of work to be done with these gaps in diversity. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity for companies to look at their practices and policies to address whether or not there is any inequity in pay as far as gender. Uh, and earlier this year, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor had said that this is one of the biggest gaps that we needed to look at, one of the biggest things that was facing major companies uh, as far as pay equity for gender. Absolutely. And while the extent of the gap, as we have long believed it, may be new and provided that you believe the new research over the Census Bureau data, the foundational problem is certainly not new. What have you been seeing as responses from organizations here? So lately, we've been seeing a number of companies conduct pay equity audits to determine whether or not there is anything that's causing that they are doing, any policies or practices that they have that are causing these inequities in pay that are related to any, you know, gender issues that they are causing. And, you know, in doing that, you know, we look at a number of factors to do that. We're also seeing companies look at their handbooks and applications in response to salary history laws that have been enacted by a number of states and local jurisdictions that have prohibited companies from asking about prior um, salaries. Because if you use people's prior salary in determining an applicant's salary when they join your company, of course, you're going to perpetuate any type of, you know, gender inequality that they've had at other companies. And uh, this can help because really companies don't want to know what an applicant has been paid. What they really want to know is what is an applicant willing to take in order to come to your company. Wage gaps and pay audits. I wonder if you might unpack these concepts for listeners who may be curious about what is involved. Absolutely. So when we talk about doing a pay equity audit, we look at the salaries of jobs that are substantially similar. And when we talk about similar, you know, sometimes it's not just certain job titles. I mean, you may have people with the same job titles or they may have different job titles across a company, but they may be performing similar um, duties. And so the, and the law will look at that. So that's one of the things that we look at. And we'll gather information regarding an employee's tenure because that can account for some wage differences, their starting salary. And we'll look at, you know, different divisions, of course, because different divisions may pay differently. Uh, Different parts of the country where they're located, we'll look at their supervisors as well because we know sometimes supervisors may have a say in what the salaries uh, may be for their subordinates. We'll look at people's experience because your experience may determine what salary you're being paid. And we'll also look at other demographics, although today, you know, based on our study, we're talking about gender, but we'll look at race and age and other demographics to see if there are any other patterns as to why there is a gap. Uh, And we'll evaluate those groups of jobs. Uh, And if we see any issues, whether that can be mitigated, for instance, by different skills or effort or any educational differences between individuals that we see. So we'll certainly do that. Talk to us about some of the benefits of such audits. The benefits of doing that are to determine before you get any type of claim from an employee, 
that for some reason they haven't been paid the same as their, you know, male counterparts. And also just a good thing for companies to do. I mean, most companies do want to pay their employees who are, you know, exerting the same type of skill in their jobs, the same amount. And a lot of times they may not even realize that this is going on if they don't do a pay equity audit or if they don't look at this without um, in looking at all the demographics because they have different people setting those salaries or they may not have a set system in place for setting compensation. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many companies don't have that. Um, and so th- that's a good reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, inevitably, these processes also come with some risk, don't they? Absolutely. So some of the risk that we've seen is, for instance, if when you do an audit, you may see, for instance, that there are some inequities. And if you do see some inequities and you may see that women in this particular department or this location are paid less than men. And so sometimes we've had people ask, well, can we just lower the salaries of those men? And their statutes specifically will say that you can't lower someone's salary in order to do that. So that's one of the risks that's involved. And also, you you can't get this information and then ignore it. So it's important Mm -hmm. that if you do an audit, that you're ready to do something about it. You can't just turn a blind eye. You can't say, okay, well, we found this information, and now we don't want to do anything about it. And so one of the things which, you know, we talk about all the time, and I know um, you talk about probably when you do training, is you want to make sure that you're doing this with an eye toward having it being privileged. Uh, So you want to have your legal department involved to make sure that you keep that privilege. Right, right. Be careful of what you ask for. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you you don't want to, you know, say that we want to figure this out and then say, well, we're going to just put it on the shelf and know that we have this problem and not do anything about it. I mean, that's, you know, and, and so it's important that if you undertake this effort that you're ready to remedy whatever problems that you have or put some systems in place to correct those problems if there are problems or institute some policies or training to help with that. Yvette, can you give me a sense of whether or not you're seeing any noteworthy trends with respect to this practice? Sure. I mean, across the country, uh, we are seeing certainly a number of states and local jurisdictions instituting salary history laws because companies are, you know, not wanting to perpetuate um, the salary history or any kind of wage inequities that they've seen from other companies. And so the, the salary history laws, that's one of the trends that we're seeing. We're also seeing people looking at their policies or their handbooks to make sure that they are not um, prohibiting employees from asking about salaries so that employees feel open to discuss salaries. Um, And that's been something that employees have been free to do, but making sure that they don't have any policies that prohibit that and training managers to let them know that they can't stop employees from doing that. We're also seeing people revise handbooks to do that as well and training decision makers who are making compensation decisions to not necessarily think about whether or not someone is, you know, has a family or whether someone has family obligations. I mean, I've seen that come up, um, but making sure that they are equitable and using policies that, you know, a company has in place or making sure that they have policies in setting compensation and so that it's not 
subjective, but that it's using objective criteria related to the job. And avoiding seniority or just tenure alone in setting pay, those can sometimes lead to inequities uh, that don't have a lot to do with the job skills and effort that are required for a position. Right. And do you predict some kind of an uptick as a result of this new study? You know, I do. I mean, we certainly, you know, hear a lot in the news about the Me Too movement, but I think that, you know, you do see people becoming aware of, you know, changes in pay. And I think that once people become, you know, feel free to discuss their salaries and figure out that they are not being paid the same as others, I think you will see an uptick in that, yes, and especially with the salary history laws. Right. Now, in addition to the measures that you have so eloquently outlined for us, what else are you seeing clients do to address these kinds of discrepancies and which are now apparently much deeper than we realized? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that we see and one of the things that was talked about in the study was, you know, having policies that are, you know, pro-family policies or allowing people to take time off that don't necessarily reference one gender, um, which Mm -hmm. can encourage men and women to take time off. Because one of the things that the study talked about was, you know, certainly women are penalized a little more when they take the time off. And so that if you have policies that seem to just apply to women, men may not feel as comfortable taking time off, for instance, for, you know, parental leave or those types of policies. And so I think that if you have more pro-family policies or policies that apply equally to men and women when they need that time off, I think those are things that we're seeing. Now, Yvette, I'm glad that you've brought that up. I want to focus on that for a moment because you're absolutely right. In the IWPR study, the researchers specifically note that in order to narrow this wage gap, policies like paid family and medical leave and affordable child care can work to strengthen women's attachment to the workforce, as they put it, while also encouraging men to share more of the unpaid time spent on family care. But I wonder if it is the mere creation or restructuring of these policies that matter as much as the manner in which the messaging of who should be availing themselves to those policies is communicated. Cindy, and that's a great point. It's not just about creating the policies. I think it's also the messaging, like you said, and and also, not just the messaging, as we've seen in a lot of contexts as as far as diversity, it's also the top down. If you don't Mm -hmm. see senior leaders in your organization who are utilizing these policies and in leadership, you know, you may think or people may think that it's not acceptable Mm -hmm. to utilize these policies. So if you don't see, you know, the leaders encouraging people or advancing people who take advantage of these policies, it may not seem that that's something that is accepted by the organization. So it's one Mm -hmm. thing to publish a policy and say that we have it, but if people don't advance after taking these policies or people's compensation is not equal or advancing the same after they've taken these policies, I think that can be a problem. Or rolling their eyes when people do avail themselves of those policies. 
Absolutely. I and mean, people have to be, you know, supportive of the policies. So it's not just putting it in a handbook or saying that we have these available. You have to be encouraging. And it has to also be that people can also get leadership positions and also their compensation mm-hmm. is, is still going to be reflected or move at the same rate as other uh, people of the same, you know, of different genders or when they avail themselves of these policies. So it's more about practice what you preach and making sure that, you know, that you are following your policy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what are your thoughts about companies who market women-friendly policies? (laughs) Help or hindrance? You know, I... I know a lot of companies do this for recruiting efforts, and I think that one of the things that companies can do is when they're talking in recruiting, to talk to all applicants about these policies, because when you market them just to women, you know, it suggests that only women should take advantage, and one of the things, you know, that they talked about in the study is that, of course, when women take these, it's more of a a disadvantage to them and that they tend to take more time off and that uh, hurts them when they take time off. Um, And, you know, so it should be, you know, something that is marketed to everyone and that it's more of, you know, family-friendly policies or leave policies or you can take personal leave for everyone because everyone can have a family, uh, everyone can have parental leave, or everyone can have, you know, the Family Medical Leave Act, everyone can take advantage of that. So I think that um, I understand sometimes why people will do that, but, you know, I think it can be a hindrance and can seem to, you know, men who maybe want to take advantage of that, um, that, that maybe it's not encouraged. Right. So arguably persistent pay gap issues are perpetuated by more factors than rectifying disparate compensation structures and creating policies. If I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, some, dare I say, responsible organizational messaging around such policies is critical, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting, too, that you, you talked about, you know, just kind of organizational messaging. One, there was a study that came out in August of this year that talked about, as well, women volunteering for opportunities more than men, and that some of the, the opportunities they volunteer for in their organizations did not lead to promotions or did not lead to compensation within their organizations. Mm-hmm. And one of the statistics said that women, you know, raised their hand 48% more than uh, men. And they call mm-hmm. these kind of office mom type of duties. And these didn't lead to promotable opportunities within their organizations. And this was a, a study done by Harvard, and it's very interesting, the Harvard Business Review. And it's a very interesting study. Because it talks, I mean, certainly not saying that women sh- shouldn't volunteer for these opportunities, but maybe they should be rotated. And maybe organizations need to also think about when they are selecting people for these opportunities, thinking about, um, you know, selecting men and women and rotating other people through these opportunities. But it's a very interesting thing to think about that women are volunteering more and uh, that these are, you know, affecting the wages of men and women. Yes, I recall that study in which economics professors Linda Babcock and Lise Westerlund, I recall, uh, made those findings. Yes. You know, it it shows that, you know, there's so many factors that may lead to this gender gap 
that we talk about. And so there are a number of things that organizations can do in looking at these um, these factors. And even when you talk about, you know, mentoring opportunities, people who mentor women or, you know, talk to women about leadership opportunities can certainly talk to them about, is this opportunity that you are looking at going to lead to uh, a promotion or, or should you be on this committee, you know, have people you know, who have gone to leadership positions, has this committee led to that? Uh, because women are just more likely, you know, to say yes to these opportunities. They tend to volunteer more. So. Right. And, and to be fair, the findings revealed that it wasn't just men who were doing the asking. Women were also asking other women, knowing that they were more likely to say yes more often. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that we talk about that, Yvette, because it causes me to have us take a step back for a moment because I want to turn to a close relative of messaging, and that is the effect of socialization. Now, in previous podcasts that I have dedicated to workplace culture in this program, we have discussed the reality that companies inherit male and female grown-ups who have been socialized in such a way so that certain practices and tendencies are baked in. And here's where I'm going with this. The effects of childbearing and childrearing, as well as household responsibilities, with women often bearing the brunt of the latter, are often factored into the analysis involved in the wage gap. But it's becoming increasingly clear that these variables may actually be overemphasized as to the reasons for the wage gap. And to this point, in her book, The Cost of Being a Girl, Montclair State University sociology professor Yasmin Essen Casino discusses the fact that this wage gap starts as early as in our teen years, in our starter jobs, when these factors are not even relevant as they are to adult workers. Yes, and as Professor Bissen Casino notes, many of us begin work as early as 14 or even younger, contracting for yard work and babysitting, for instance. So, yes, and in fact, when I was 11, my first job was a volunteer job. I, uh, My mother said, you know, I think you should get a job, and she told me that I could volunteer as a candy striper. And so I went and volunteered at a hospital where we lived in Maryland as a candy striper. And mm-hmm. I didn't get paid for it. It was, she thought it would show me, you know, responsibility and what I needed to do once I got a job. And it was a great opportunity for me, but it, you know, certainly was something that instilled in me that, you know, you need to work every day. This is just something you need to do to be responsible. And I didn't get paid. I worked all summer and it was a, gr- a great opportunity, but it wasn't, um, it, but it also showed me that it was something that I needed to volunteer for. And I think, um, and at that time, you know, I just think it's just something that, you know, not saying that men don't do it, but at that time when I worked, I didn't know any other men candy stripers. I didn't, don't recall seeing any. Right, right. Yvette, I I personally had a full-fledged babysitting practice by age 12. (laughs) I would would double my rate 
and even subcontract other babysitters in the neighborhood to families in my client base on peak nights like New Year's Eve. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> One night, I actually recall being shortchanged by a pair of parents who had come home a little after midnight and handed me $12 for a four-hour stint for their two little boys. And as I was leaving, I counted the money, but it was on their doorstep. And I noticed that it was $12 and that it should have been 15 And when I rang the doorbell before they could close the, you know, lock the door rather and take off the porch light and they opened the door looking at me like, you know, have you forgotten something? And when they opened the door, I, I said, you actually owe me $15. And they just looked at me a little stunned that this 12 year old was telling them that you fifth me. <laughs> uh, they, they reached into their pocket. They gave me the extra $3. But my point with this is, and, and I don't know if this would have happened with a male babysitter. I'm not suggesting that this is akin to the research uh, in the book that we are talking about, The Cost of Being a Girl. But I had never heard from them again. As a result of speaking up about being shortchanged, I was essentially shut out, fired really. And I was a 12-year-old babysitter. Again, I don't know if that would have happened to a boy, but it happened to me. So, I mean, I'm sure that that, you know, instilled in you, I think, some feelings about what happens when you speak up and ask for, you know, higher compensation or ask for even what you thought you deserved based exactly. on exactly and what you had, you know, put forth. Um, and and this, that probably and happens goes, to a number of people. Absolutely. That, and this goes to the socialization, uh, the early socialization stages. Uh, and, and I know that we digress, but this is exactly what Professor Besson Casino speaks about in finding that girls in their tween years or their teen years are still paid less than boys with no differentiators in the mix like spouses and children and looks at the reasons for why this happens and, and what happens. And she points to a number of factors, like for instance, the lack of knowledge about the going rate for a job. Whereas teenage boys, she found, are often asked, how much do you expect to make? Girls are simply given an amount with no room for negotiation. They have weak negotiation skills, squishy job descriptions, unpaid time before or after formal work hours. They buy little extras, girls in particular, buy little extras to carry out their tasks and they incur out-of-pocket expenses and they don't want to bother anybody about being repaid for them. They go above and beyond by doing favors for friends and neighbors and family members. Do any of these patterns uh, that are spoken about in this book sound familiar, Yvette? Absolutely. I, you know, I don't know that I knew until late in my career that you could negotiate <laughs> and I'm probably the same to say your your salary. Um, exactly. And I, you know, I think a lot of people, even if they know to negotiate, don't know maybe what the going rate would be. Um, a lot of women, and I, you know, not to speak for all women, I can't say that, but I think that you know, when you look at some of the gender gaps, the the, the starting salaries sometimes can be higher because of that. They that women don't negotiate probably on the same level that men do, and so sometimes we see that. And that can be an issue. Yes, absolutely. 
Now, obviously, many of the solutions to narrowing this widening pay gap exist in taking a look at our organizational practices, our systems, our structures. But I, I would like to leave our listeners with some people-based solutions, too. And to that end, let me ask you this two-part question. First, what can women in leadership do to help other women? And secondly, what can women do to help themselves? Sure. I think women in leadership can, one, you know, speak to the lessons that they've learned about, for instance, negotiation, which is one of the things we just talked about, that they can negotiate. And also any information that they have about the compensation within their organizations or speak to women in similar organizations to find out what is the going rate for these jobs? What is the going rate for, you know, people with my skills, my efforts? Um, how can I find out what that market rate is? You have to do the pre-search. Right. And, you know, I think that helping people do that and figuring out how, you know, what, what is the going rate for that and figuring that out. I think that, um, you know, and because they may have more information about how that company sets those rates. And so making sure that they talk to uh, other women about that. And I think what women can do to help themselves certainly is asking those questions ahead of time, feeling that they can negotiate and also taking advantage of the policies that are in place if they need the help, either whether it's leave, but also asking how, if any way that will affect their compensation. And even if they're going to volunteer for committees, making sure that when they volunteer, that those committees are ones that will lead to higher compensation. And if they certainly are valuable to them, I mean, there's nothing wrong with volunteering for committees that are valuable for you personally. But making sure that you're also volunteering for opportunities that will advance your compensation if that is of value to you and your career. Right. Now, is there anything else that can be done? <laughs> Certainly. You know, we talk a lot about unconscious bias training. Some of that, I think, can creep into salaries. You know, some of the unconscious bias of people thinking, well, this person is the breadwinner. Uh, sometimes those things can creep into setting salaries, so training people on unconscious biases that people have in setting salaries. You know, we do that type of training all the time and training people on things to look at when setting salaries. And um, so I think that those things can certainly help. With our few minutes remaining, Yvette, would you like to share any closing thoughts about this issue? I think that based on, you know, what we've seen and the research that's come out, as, as we can see, there are a number of factors that go into this wage uh, gap, and it, it's still ongoing. And so I think that it's best for companies to audit these issues, and certainly we do those audits all the time. But I think that, it, you know, looking at the factors and certainly trying to address these before you get into litigation, I think, is a best practice. Wonderful. We have to leave it there, but I am sure that we will revisit this in the not-too-distant future. Yvette Gatling, my learned colleague from our Littler office in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, where she is a shareholder. Thank you so much for taking the time to dialogue around this very important issue. 
Thank you, Cindy Ann, so much for inviting me to your podcast. This was wonderful. I think this is a very timely topic, and I thank you for sharing this topic and inviting me. Again, no, thank you. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com. If you should have any questions about this episode, or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.